0: Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Man, what a great statement. I pray that you believe that, because we live in a broken world. You know, the the series is entitled Broken, Life in a Painful World. And maybe, I don't know, it just seems these days I'm seeing it more clearly than ever. The amount of sorrow, of suffering, of pain in our world, in our church— is quite honestly overwhelming. Just in this room alone, the amount of pain that's represented is staggering. The, the physical pain of folks who are dealing with chronic pain and disease. The financial pain, as folks are dealing with companies that are failing and positions lost and bankruptcy rising. And I think of the relational pain As folks are dealing with the loss of a loved one, conflict in a marriage, rebellious children, broken friendships. The pain is immense. If we had the time, we could go around and every one of us could share of what we're dealing with. And I have found the second half of Romans 8 to be so unbelievably helpful for me. As I seek to understand why is this happening, and how can I live, and not just survive, but thrive in this pain-filled world. Have you studied Romans 8 before? Well, you're about to. For six weeks, we're going to work verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through the second half of the book of Romans, the second half of chapter 8. And I really believe and pray that you will be ministered to by this section of Scripture, as, as I have been, you know uh, I was really impressed by a, a woman, a precious woman by the name of Julie Vogt. She saw the logo of this new series with the globe cracked open and she was she 's a painter and so she was inspired and and put her brush to the canvas and came up with this symbolic picture. I wanted to share it with you you 'll notice the cracking globe, the broken world, but The tree of life being born right out of it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that represents what I pray would happen in this series. We don't deny the brokenness, but we find through the Lord a life in the midst of it. Amen? It is a beautiful picture. Uh, Not I mean, I'm a bit of an art critic, not perfect. If I were to, and I think I will, add my touch to it, I would say that the tree of life, uh, according to the Scriptures, has fruit in it. So I'm going to add some, uh, some fruit, which I just personally think makes it, you know, just a little more biblical. I'm a theologian, you know, I want to mm-hmm. add that uh, biblical touch to it. Um, And then I was thinking, what about like some wildlife, you know? So maybe a bluebird, you know, a bluebird would be really nice right Uh, here. It's a a bleeding bluebird. Uh, Maybe a wing. Does that look like a bluebird? Yeah, sure it does. Um, And then... uh, I don't know, maybe just a couple more branches, I think, you know, a branch here and a branch there, and that's, I'm liking it more, and then um, uh, I was thinking it's awfully flat, you know, I, I love uh, pictures that have more multi-dimensional uh, conditions to them, and so uh, I thought I would just, I don't know, deepen it a little bit, you know, and... Uh, excuse me. Well, I fix this. Oh, whoops! sorry, right. And some of you are saying, Jeff, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> A small detail I probably should mention, and that is that when we asked Julie if she'd be willing to paint the picture, we told her what we were going to be doing with it. I didn't want her to be very upset, and she said, "No, absolutely. That sounds beautiful." Uh, so the question could be asked, Jeff, you've ruined it. You vandalized what was a beautiful picture. I did. But I would argue that I made it more like real life. You know, when you, when you studied the picture before the vandalism, you could have made various observations and concluded various things about Julie's ability her symbolic bent, coming up with that idea. There's things about the artist that you could have known. But if you came to it looking like this, and I asked you, what can you tell me about the artist? You'd say, ah, 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 I don't know, you know. And and your assumption about her would be different. Failing to realize that what you're looking at is actually the result of two events the original beautiful creation, and the subsequent vandalism by a pastor who was out of control. And if you understood that, you could better avoid misunderstanding about the artist. Here's the problem. When people look at planet Earth, when they look at the world around them, and they say in an over-simplistic explanation, God made the world, they come to various erroneous assumptions about God. They look at kids suffering from cancer, and they look at war, and they look at disease. They look at disaster and strife and loss, and they say, what kind of a God would make a world like this? I've had a number of people say, Jeff, you know, the Compass Church, to love him more, so more love him. That sounds so beautiful. And I want to love him more, but I am struggling to believe that God is as good and wonderful as you say he is, because I look at the brokenness of the world all around me and I say, look what he made. I mean, how can I embrace him if this is his creation? This is where theology, admittedly we're going to get a little theological this morning. Theology is the truth about God and the world he made and how we can fit into it. And that theological understanding is a paradigm through which we view everything and it changes the way we feel and respond to God. And so we need Romans 8. We need a theological understanding an accurate theological understanding of how the world we live in got to be the way it is. So let's take a look at Romans 8, verse 18. I remember I said the second half of Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 18. The Apostle Paul is the author of the book. He's writing to the Christians in Rome as God's Spirit leads him. Paul says, Yet what we suffer now is really nothing compared to the glory that he'll give us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation has been subjected to God's curse. All right, so let's let's dive into this passage a moment here. It starts off, Paul says, for what we suffer now, can I point out the obvious here? Paul just flatly says it in plan, on planet Earth, people suffer. You know, there are some religious systems that seem to try to put a positive spin on things and say all oh, pain and suffering is just a figment of your imagination. It's not real. <laughs> Christianity flatly acknowledges suffering is all around us. It's part of life on planet Earth. Uh, We suffer now, is what Paul says. But he says, if we compare our present suffering to the glory that is coming, I'd I'd love to dive into a a comparison there, but I'm going to wait until next week to talk about that future glory of heaven that we anticipate, that puts all this present suffering into perspective. Uh, But he says... That glory that's coming, oh, is that going to be sweet? And then he makes an interesting statement about creation. He says, all creation is actually waiting for that glory to be revealed. When God's children on judgment day are revealed as God's children, reconciled through the blood of Christ, on that final day, creation can't wait. And you say, why? Why is creation all excited about that day? Because just as we will be fixed, so will creation be fixed. And you say, does does the created world need to be fixed? Yes, here's the key statement. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Do you see the two events here? Let me highlight the two words, creation and curse. The world we see all around us is not the result of one event, but two. The original creation of God was perfect and glorious and beautiful. If you read the first two chapters of Genesis, it describes the world God made. And when we look at that original creation, we can see the love, the creativity, the beauty of God on display. But you gotta get to the third chapter of Genesis because another event occurs there. What is it? It's the fall of mankind, the rebellion of humanity when Adam and Eve ate the fruit God had forbidden them to eat. In that moment, everything changed. In that moment, you know, you may be tempted to minimize the significance of, ah, they ate an apple, a piece of fruit, what's the big deal You got to remember that God set up that tree symbolically as a picture of the opportunity given with free will to turn away from God. The Lord said, I love you, and I want you to love me, but I'm not going to force you to love me. And so out of this vision I have of a mutually free chosen love relationship, God says, I'm going to give you a path to leave me if you want to reject me, if you want to say no, I don't want you as my king, I'll give you a path of rebellion. And that's the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, took that path, when they chose to give in to the temptation of Satan and say, you know what, maybe Satan's right. Maybe life without God is better. That eating of the fruit is rich in its symbolism. It's pointing to the decision of mankind to go without the God who made them and loves them. It's huge. And it's not just Adam and Eve. Every single one of their descendants, including you and I, have chosen that same path with our lives. The Bible said all have sinned. Sin is that rebellion where we know what God wants. I'm going to go this way. And folks, the consequence of sin, according to Genesis 3, is the curse. When Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, the Lord showed up, and he spoke to them in that chapter. He said, Adam and Eve, because you have chosen to side with my enemy, the earth in your life will be marked by a curse. What's interesting in this passage is, And I I get a little uncomfortable with this. It's called God's curse. And I suppose, in one sense, it is the Lord in Genesis 3 proclaimed the curse, it was his voice that announced the curse. But I want it to be very clear that it was humanity that caused the curse, it was our spiritual rebellion that brought about those consequences. And I would even go so far as to say that I believe those consequences, the curse, are the natural consequences of our rebellion. It's us getting what we asked for. And you say, really? How, how, Jeff, can that all be the natural, all that's broken in the world is the natural consequence of our spiritual rebellion? Let me make my case. There's a passage in Colossians that simply states this. It says, he, Jesus, Holds all creation together. What that, if you read the context, it says that way back at the creation of the world, Jesus was there. Jesus was a part of creation. And Jesus was made to hold creation together. Another way I like to say it is that the Lord is an essential engineered part of the created realm the Lord did not make this world to operate without him. He made everything dependent on him. He holds it together. And if you reject the one who holds it all together, what happens? It falls apart. One of the images that uh, the New Testament gives for this is the notion of Jesus being the keystone. Do you know what a keystone is? Let me bring you over here to a Roman arch. The Romans were really passionate about the Roman arch. They used it all over in their architecture. As I've been to Israel, you see still Roman arches that date back to the days of Christ. And the Roman arch is a brilliant way through physics and the transfer of gravitational forces where, you know, you can suspend an incredible amount of weight. But yet, integral in the Roman arch is this stone right here in the middle of it. It's called the keystone. They all lean, if you will, on the keystone. All of these stones lean on this middle one. All of these stones lean on this middle one. And the keystone is an engineered essential component of the Roman arch, is it not? And Jesus has said he's like the keystone. He's what holds it all together. Well, when Adam and Eve listened to the enticement of Satan, and Satan said, Trust me, you can be like the gods if you just tell the Lord you don't need him. And they were, they said, Man, maybe he's got a point. Maybe without God, things would be better. Now, did the Lord upon that abandon us entirely? No. In his grace, God still holds the world together, all right? If God were to entirely leave, I believe everything would just implode. But God did, again, I believe, in his grace, allow us to experience some of the natural consequence of his removal from the system. He says, if you tell me you don't need me, I'm going to give you a little taste of what you're asking for. When you look to the keystone and you say, ah... I think we'll try it without you. It all falls apart. Folks, welcome to planet Earth. This is where we live. Humanity has chosen to displace the one who holds it all together. And as a result of that decision, we live in a disaster land. We live where there is Great suffering. You know, can I take you on a tour, if you will, of the rubble that we live amongst? Again, in Genesis three, uh, it describes the various curses or the various aspects of the big curse. Let me just list them for you as, as we do this tour. Back in Genesis three, we see that the the curse affects number one our bodies. Verse 16, it says uh, to the wife, to Eve, God says, Eve, because of your spiritual rebellion, you will bear children with intense pain and suffering. I'm going to, ladies, have to ask you about that point. Is that true? Amen. I don't fully understand it, but somehow taking God out of the equation changed the human body. The body doesn't function like it originally did. There is a brokenness, a pain that's there. And I believe this is symbolic of greater changes in the human body. Disease, injury, birth defects. The body's just breaking down. It's not working like it originally did. And ultimately, it all comes back to our spiritual rebellion. What about our relationships? God continuing in verse... This is verse 16, by the way, Genesis 3, verse 16. Continuing in verse 16, God said to Eve, You know, your husband, he will be your master. You know, God wants the husband to be a selfless, loving leader. And yet God predicted marital strife where a husband would abuse that leadership role and just rule self-centeredly. And this relational strife within marriage is symbolic of more relational strife. All the relational angst that we see originates from that that rebellion. The curse affects our work life. God turned to Adam in in verse 17 of Genesis 3 and said, Adam, uh, you know, you're a farmer. You're going to try to work to provide a living for your family. Well, he says, you will struggle your work will be marked by struggle. And when we look at work life, anybody contest? It's a struggle. It just doesn't go smoothly. Much pain is in the process. The earth is marked by the, by the curse. Verse 18 says, one of the other changes will be that the ground will grow thorns and thistles. Apparently, the biology of planet earth is marked by This curse where there are dangerous elements to planet Earth, thorns and thistles are the example here, but that speaks of a greater danger. I I think that it alludes to natural disasters and all the danger that can come about from living on planet Earth. Uh, Our lifespan is affected by the curse. Uh, Our lifespan was original, can we put lifespan up? There we go, lifespan, there we go. Uh, Our lifespan was originally endless, but because of the curse, the Lord announced, Adam, you're going to return to the ground from which you came. That's verse 19. You came from the ground, you're going to be buried in the ground. Death is a result of the curse. And then the worst of it all, I'm going to call worship. Our worship, our relationship with God was forever altered by this curse. In a very sad verse, verse 23, God looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, you are banished from the Garden of Eden, this beautiful place where we have walked together and talked, where you have seen me visibly and enjoyed a relationship of the finest sort. God says, you made your call. Get out of here. Now, Jesus has reconciled us to the Lord. Those of us who are Christians have found forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but we still don't enjoy a Garden of Eden, you know, face-to-face visibly. We're going to learn next week that we're going to get it, but boy, the most sad result of the fall was the fractured relationship with God. Folks, uh, the curse changed everything. God did not make the world to be independent from him. Our bodies were engineered, dependent on his involvement. Our relationships, engineered by God to be dependent. Work, earth, lifespan, worship, everything in life was engineered to be dependent on his involvement. And when we say, back off, God, God says, then you're going to experience the result of the curse. Well, I'd like to uh, ask a couple more questions as we continue in this study. The first question is How then can we understand the world we live in? When we look at the world, you know, somewhere uh, you could ask this question Is it a beautiful world? Yes. Or is it a painful world? Yes. I think some, particularly us optimists, like to go to the beautiful side. You know, let's just kind of look away from all the pain and suffering and let's just say, oh, what a beautiful world we live in. A a book really helped me, a a fiction book, surprisingly. C.S. Lewis, the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. He also wrote some adult fiction, some adult science fiction back in 1938, a long time ago. It was a space trilogy, Uh, one of them, the first book is called Out of the Silent Planet, Out of the Silent Planet, and I read this book, and it really marked me, I'll tell you the premise, there's a uh, professor, Dr. Elwin Ransom, and he, through a bunch of circumstances I won't get into now, ends up on a spaceship, and he flies in that spaceship, and he lands on what is Mars. Mars. Got to remember back in 1938, we didn't have rovers on Mars. That's when they were still imagining other life forms. And this book is based, this fictional book, is based on the presumption that God created other creatures and all of these planets are inhabited by creatures of God. And Mars is the one Ransom arrives at. And, and as he walks around, he meets some of the creatures God made on Mars. Mars. And he engages in one of them in a great discussion. And this guy from Mars is very excited to figure out where Ransom is from. Ransom says, I'm from earth. And he's like, I don't know earth. And he doesn't know it by that name. As he begins to describe where earth is and what it's like, all of a sudden it dawns on this guy from Mars where it is this man is from. And he is aghast. He, he steps back in utter horror. You're from the silent planet? That's why the book's called Out of the Silent Planet. And he refers to our planet as the silent planet by going on to explain, your planet's the one under quarantine. Your planet's the one we have no contact with. You know, what is quarantine? Quarantine is isolation to prevent the spread of a contagious disease. Well, our planet's got a contagious disease called sin, rebellion from God. And as this guy from Mars begins to under explain his understanding of the silent planet, he says, our understanding is that you're the planet where the angels rebelled against God. And Satan, who lives on planet Earth, is, he and his demons are just that, rebellious angels. And he says, we understand you're the planet that The humanity, the people God created, they all turned in rebellion against God. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, that's true. And he's like, I can't believe you live in that dark enemy territory. And as this ransom, this guy from Earth, hears about his own planet from the perspective of one on the outside, he is embarrassed to admit that he never really realized where it was he lived. And I think that's true of us. I think we want to say, we live on planet Earth and it's wonderful. And part of it is. As we are able to look at the original creation God made and some of the beauty in what he made, we can say it is wonderful. But don't end your description there. It is a dark and rebellious world. We live on the dark planet. Later in Romans 8, It will describe it as the groaning planet. That's what we call home. A place that is quarantined. That is in hideous rebellion against the beautiful and good God. And living with the painful consequences of that rebellion. I can imagine some saying, well, why okay, I understand, we were given free will, we rebelled against God, which was a major deal that carried all kinds of destructive consequences. If God is so loving and gracious and kind, why doesn't he just clean up the mess? We caused the mess, he'll just clean up the mess. Well, two things. One, as we're gonna find out next week, he will clean up the mess, all right? But he's not cleaning up the mess right now. He's allowing us to live in the mess we made for a short time. You say, short? Compared to eternity, yes, very short. And and it begs the question, why? Why is God allowing us to live in the mess that we made? Would it be better for our soul if God came through and cleaned everything up and made a planet perfect, life Easy and comfortable for people who are in rebellion from him? I don't think it would. I contend that if spiritual rebels got to live in a cleaned up world that was consequence free, we would continue being spiritual rebels, skipping and singing through life without realizing there's a problem. The pain and suffering and the brokenness of our world screams, this is not the way it was meant to be. Hello, everybody. There's a big problem you need to address. You need the one who's come to save the day. You need Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the broken world that we live in. And God cares more about our eternal destiny than he does about our comfort. Did you know that? God, all things considered, would love for us to be comfortable. But God says, you know, if you were comfortable, if I just spared you of all the consequences of your own rebellion, it may have a short-term benefit for a huge long-term loss. And God says, what I care about in this short tour of planet earth is that people would realize that there's a problem and that sin is the problem and that they need help from the one who can forgive and resolve the problem. If you talk with folks, I mean, we could go around the room and say, how did you come to Jesus? More often than not, the pain, the brokenness of this world is what woke people up that I need help. And so God strategically says, out of my love for you, I need to allow you to experience life on the broken planet. It's part of my salvation strategy, if you will. You know what it reminds me of? This is a a smoke detector from my house. I don't like smoke detectors. I'll just say it flatly. You know, the, the battery goes low, and in the middle of the night, they start chirping at you. Oh, it drives me crazy. And, and whoever, whatever engineer, maybe one of you work for a smoke detector company, but whoever engineered this sound, I mean, that's hideous, you know? I mean, that's just annoying to the core. Why, why, engineer, did you not have a soft, beautiful melody, you know, that comes out, your house is on fire, your house is on fire, run to the door, you know, wouldn't that be a much better? Well, come to find out, the engineers behind the smoke detector are not interested in our comfort. And if that ear-piercing scream is miserable, so be it. That's their goal is to get us to realize, there's a problem! And God said, you know, the fallen condition of planet Earth is like a smoke detector. It's shouting, there's a problem! It's not pleasant, it's, a, it's horrible. But it gets your attention. And it makes you realize that things are not as they were meant to be. That the world's on fire, and you need to run to the one who can save the day. And suddenly, we were accusing God, potentially, of being evil. And what we've discovered upon a deeper theological analysis is that God is good. When he gave us freedom, that was good. When he allowed us to choose our own path, that was good. Now, we rebelled, which was horrific. We rejected him, and consequences arose from that rebellion because he had engineered himself to be an essential part of it all. And he allows us to live with those consequences so that we will not be duped into thinking everything's okay. And that is good. And when we understand God's salvation strategy, suddenly, with both the good and the bad, we discover the love of God. And so I have a, an assignment, if you will, a little homework that I'd like to challenge you to. And it is this. When you uh, go this week, so here, your homework can start today, spread through the week, all right? I want you to be on the lookout. You know, as, as a, an al- one who analyzes art, I want you to be studying the world, the art, the sculpture out there. But do so, not naively, do so with this theological framework guiding you. Look for the good, the beautiful, and look for the painful, all right? Look for examples of God's original beautiful art. You know, with with this painting, you have to kind of look beyond the vandalism and find unmarred areas to see the original creation, but it's still visible on the painting and it's still visible out there. When you see a child laughing, thank God for joy. When you see a mother loving, thank God for love. When you see musicians playing music, thank God that he is an artist and that he created music. You'll be looking and you'll find so much that is beautiful. And when you see the beauty, here's what you do. You worship God. You say, Lord, I see your goodness on display in the world around me, and I love you more, and I worship you in this moment for what you've made. But the other part of the assignment is not to look away from the pain and suffering, but to look at it, to lean into it, if you will, and to recognize where that came from. That is not part of your original creation that is part of the brokenness that ensued because of our moral rebellion. I know what it is. And Lord, it reminds me of where I live. I live on the silent planet. I live in the enemy occupied territory. I live on a very scary place. And what does it remind me? As the smoke detector tells me to run to the firemen, Lord, this pain causes me to run to you. Every time you see suffering or pain, pray this prayer. Lord, I cry out for help to you. We need you. We need you to forgive us of our rebellion. We need you to help us make it in this painful world. And so simple assignment. See the beauty, worship him. See the pain, cry out to help to him. And in all ways, look to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, we want to humbly acknowledge we messed up. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's Jeff Griffin and all those who are here. We are all part of that rebellion. Forgive us, Jesus. I can't wait next week to study how you broke into this disastrous situation and started bringing restoration but we know you're our only hope. For all that is painful, we cling to you. We cry out for help. And in all that is beautiful, help us to worship you. God, make us wise, theologically astute. Help us properly interpret the circumstances in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.